Welcome to Ono oh Ross and Carrie, the show where we don't just report on fringe science, spirituality, claims of the paranormal, but take part ourselves. Yep, when they make the claims, we show up so you don't have to. I'm Carrie Poppy. And I'm Ross Blotcher, and we are very pleased today to have a special guest with us, Professor David Lane. Welcome. Thanks. Good to have you here. So we are here in your beautiful and strange office at Mount Sac College, uh, Mount San Antonio College. I'm used to calling it Mount Sac. Right. Yeah. Most people do. Tell us what we are looking at. Yeah, this is the coolest office I have ever seen. It, it's, a, it's a strange office. We developed it about 10 years ago. And what I did was bring all the Indian artifacts. My wife, who's also a PhD, UC Santa Barbara, she studied the influence of North Indian religions on cults in North America. Okay. So what happened is I just brought out all these books. And we also have another library over there where we give free books to students. Like every week I have them come in, take a book, and never want it back. Nice. Because <laughs> I have like 17,000 books in my library in the desert. So it's like insane. I have I suffer from bibliomania. Yeah, so do we. Book addiction, and uh-huh. so that's my problem. Okay, it's a good problem. <laughs> yeah, we can definitely uh, form a support group on on book addiction. <laughs> definitely, have the same thing. Yeah. Okay. Oh, the, very much so. There's a Japanese term, tsundoku. Those who collect books, that yes. they could never possibly read. There's just too many. That's right. Exactly. <laughs> yep, I'm the same. So we're here because you wrote a book. Speaking of books called The Making of a Spiritual Movement, The Untold Story of Paul Twitchell and Ekin Carr. And this is the 40th year anniversary edition I'm holding. And it's still pretty much, I mean, the most respected critique of Ekin Carr. I was very young. You know, I was 20 years old, Cal yeah. State Northridge. I had a religious studies class with Professor Happ. He asked us to do something on a cult. He used to call it cults back then. Now uh-huh. we call it new religious movements. Mm-hmm. So I picked Ekin Carr. And, I, you know, I'm an obsessive research kind of guy. And so I ended up writing this term paper and naively sent it to Ekinkar's. Back <laughs> in those days, it was Menlo Park. And I thought they might like the fact that Paul Twitchell actually lied about his birth date. He claimed he was born in 1922. <laughs> hey, guys, you might want to know. <laughs> born in 1909, more likely. And he plagiarized, you know, many of his writings. And I thought this yeah. was interesting stuff. And I talked to his first wife. Nobody actually knew he'd been married twice. You know, right. I talked to his first wife. So I sent it to Akinkar naively. About two months later, my mom comes in. She with tears in her eyes because I was living at my mom's house. And she goes, uh, Dave, uh, you got a letter from these lawyers in San Francisco. They're going <laughs> to sue you if you publish your term paper. Oh, wow. And since I come from a family of lawyers, my dad's a lawyer, my sister's a mm. lawyer, I wasn't intimidated. So mm. I said, oh, my God, I must have got them you know pushed a button so for the next uh you know next year i did all this intensive research and so that's the making of this so i wrote that at 21 as a term paper as a term paper and my of course my professor looked at it goes 120 pages who wants to read this thing (laughs) just lays it on a scale certainly not me a professor exactly exactly (laughs) and so that's caused a stir so what happened is really what happened was there was a classmate of mine named james peoples it's kind of a Mm -hmm. fascinating story he's mentioned in here he writes a little term paper himself well ekinkar turns around and sues him for a million dollars because what they wanted to do is get me. They wanted to, you know, get me for like two and a half million dollars as a defamation suit. So what happened is they flew down a guy named Mike Noe from Ekinkar mm-hmm. to get copies of these papers so they could find out, you know, if there's some kind of defamation suit they can take. They're looking for any flaws exactly. in your research. Exactly. But they couldn't find it in mine, but they found it in my footnotes. So they, they sued Peebles. Then they sued this professor named Ed Gruss at L.A. Baptist mm-hmm. College because what happened was Peebles gave a copy to Ed Gruss. And so Mike Noe got a copy of it. You know, if you make one photocopy 
of a defamatory term paper that's called publication. That's right. publishing. So they mm -hmm. sued him. Oh. And it was a major thing. They took out Atkin Carter taking half-page advertisements around the country saying we were being attacked by fundamentalist Christians. Mm -hmm. It was just one – by the way, James Peeble was a member of Atkin Carter at the time. Really? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it was a pretty intense thing. So then the Spiritual Counterfeits Project – which Wait, a, hang on. With the yes. lawsuit, how did that end? Well, exactly. What oh, you're happened, getting there. No, exactly what happened. The Spiritual Counterfeits Project is this fundamentalist Christian group mm -hmm. up in Berkeley, in Berkeley. And they exposed cults back in the 70s and 80s. Well, they flew down and interviewed me, and they wanted to do a magazine devoted to Ekankar, you know, a hard look at a new religion. Yeah. Well, they made 40,000 copies of that magazine, distributed to every Ekankar center in the world, <gasps> caused a major stir. The as, as an intentional... Uh, uh, stir it up. Yeah. Because you know, they thought, you know, Ekankar was a fraud, right? And so they had quoted my term paper. So what happened is, is that Darwin Gross, who was then the living Ek master mm -hmm. at the time, sent out a worldwide memo saying that I and other people, particularly me, was a negative power from the beginning of time, and I reincarnate right. into new, you know, oh, eras. one of the cows. The cow, yeah, yeah <laughs> the call force to their term for to, evil. Exactly, and so what happened at that point is a guy up in Oregon who was a member of Ekinkar made a photocopy of my paper. It was just a little term paper, but he made a hundred, hundred, and bicycled it throughout North America and Europe. Oh wow! So thousands of people started leaving the group, and I got tons of letters from people saying, "Oh my God, I didn't know he plagiarized. I didn't know he did this." Mm -hmm. So the lawsuit was settled with okay. Peebles and other people, but they had to pay the, the, the legal bills of Ekinkar. Oh, they did? Yeah, they did because they didn't want to pursue oh, it. You know, it was guys. a real drag. And it, it oh, I'm against, damaged I'm James against that settlement. Yes. Yeah. I am too. Yeah. Oh, that's terrible. But good for you for not being scared under when, you know, you're this 20-year-old kid and yeah, you receive yeah. well, this you know, the cease was, and desist. As you, you, know, you have to document everything yes. you say. Yes. And I had made these allegations of plagiarism. But the point is, is you can anybody can figure it out. It's not very difficult. Right. But, yes. You have a whole chapter in here, or but, maybe more half a chapter, devoted to plagiarism, where it's just side by side comparisons of pre existing text and then what is supposed to be Paul Twitchell's original text. And they'll be barely different. He'll replace the word God with Eck or something like that. Right. Right. And you did all this before Google or online oh, tools? Oh, yeah, yeah. Always intense. So I guess two questions there. What originally kind of drew your attention to Eckenkart? It seems like you had some pre-existing knowledge. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because what happened was I turned vegetarian when I was 16. Oh, was, right on. Yeah. We're vegetarians too. Oh, Holla. right on, dude. Yeah, and I'm trying to go vegan. But oh, great. I'm a, I'm a weak vegan. Okay. That, that piece That's is always tempting me. You know, it's always like yeah. the dark side, you know. That's but, fine. Um, <laughs> I, I've been a vegetarian for like 46 years. I've been oh, a long wow. Time oh, since amazing. I was 16. So I was interested in Eastern philosophy and meditation and all that stuff. And so I had been practicing this thing called Shabbat Yoga, which is where Ekengard gets its stuff. But I was 20 and somewhat naive, didn't know very much. And so what happened is there was advertisements at various – like there used to be this great bookstore called The Bodhi Tree. Oh, yeah, in yeah, West in Hollywood. West Hollywood. Yeah. Yeah. It was really cool. Yeah. You know. it, it only closed a few years yeah, ago. Yeah, yeah. And if you had no money, you could sit there and read a book and pet the cat or whatever. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so – I saw the Ekinkar and I started reading The Tiger's Fang by Paul Twitchell, which is oh, probably yes. his most famous and mm -hmm. fun book. Mm -hmm. And <laughs> so from that, pretty what crazy. And then all of a sudden, I met the bodyguard of Paul Twitchell's at Peason. And I also met the president, former president of Ekinkar, Dr. Louis Bluth. And they all wanted me to help get the research out there. And there's also a guy who should be mentioned named Professor John Sufton, who used to be an Ekinkar member. 
at okay. Mississippi State University. And he was also very helpful. So I had all these people wanting to get the information out. And I, I guess I was the, the little channel for it. So you mentioned being a follower of a particular group at the time? No, I wasn't a, a follower at that time. But what okay. I mean was practicing meditation, Shabbat yoga. I knew a lot okay. about Radhaswami, which is where Twitchell gets much of his stuff from. Right. And because that's kind of my... I'm, I was interested in baseball cards as a kid. Okay. So I just transferred it over to guru cards, if you know <laughs> the trip. And that's why I got invited to go to India as a researcher research assistant to track down obscure gurus in North India and blah, blah, blah. So Now are you a follower of that group? Uh, I meditate two and a half hours a day. Oh, okay. So, but I'm a critic. So it's like, okay. I'm like, the, I'm like the, the weird, almost like, you know, Sam Harris? Yes. Know Sam. Uh-huh. Sam Harris is, you know, studied for like 10 years in Nepal, India, meditated, took ayahuasca. Teaches meditation drugs, apps. Yeah. And he, he does meditation apps. But he's like an atheist meditator. Right. right. So I'm, I call myself an agnostic, mystical materialist. Okay, which great. Which translates as I'm confused and don't know anything. <laughs> <laughs> You're our kind of people. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so as you were starting to read Paul Twitchell's work, did you already have kind of a glimmer of recognition? Like, oh, I've seen something like this? Or what, what tipped you off? That's a very good question. I, I think the tip-off is going to sound weird. I was down in Del Mar going surfing. You know, I surf a lot. And so I'm down at Del Mar and there's this restaurant called Kerpal's. And I went, Kripal, Kripal Singh. You know, Kripal Singh is a Shabbat Yoga guy. Twitchell had mentioned him in earlier articles. So I asked the guy, you know, do you know anything about Paul Twitchell? He goes, oh, yeah, man. Paul Twitchell was initiated by Kripal Singh in 1955. So the light bulb goes on. Mm. And I go, ah, maybe this is where he's getting his information. Well, I had a copy of Julian P. Johnson's Path of the Masters, which was published in back in 1939. Mm-hmm. What a and fortuitous coincidence. There you go. And then I, and I, I'm reading the book called The Far Country, which is the most plagiarized of any of Twitchell's books. Mm-hmm. And I started looking, you know, you notice one paragraph. Mm-hmm. Now you're on the detective search. It's like, oh, cool. Yeah. There's more paragraphs. There's more. So I found 400 paragraphs that were plagiarized. <laughs> they, by the way, to Eckenkar's credit, they have now withdrawn that book. You cannot get it. Which they, book is it? Far Country. Uh, I will get it, but yeah, okay. You, you can get it as used, you know, Amazon, yeah. but it's they don't republish it. Okay. Excuse me while I uh, pull <laughs> yeah. out my phone and order that book. In the meantime, there's so much to unravel with Paul Twitchell. You mentioned his disputed birth date. Even yes. that, you can't get a solid answer that, on. Well, here's my, my theory. Okay. And you guys can tell me if it's mistaken. Paul Twitchell gets married to his first wife in the 1940s. Everything goes good, but apparently, you know, he's probably a womanizer of some sort. And, and in 1955, he leaves her. He gets kicked out of the church of, of monism, of absolute monism, which is kind of like a branch of self-realization fellowship founded by Paramahansa Yogananda. Oh, mm-hmm. so we spend time with them. There you them. Go. <laughs> right. And there you go. And what happens at this stage is he leaves his wife. She files for divorce on grounds of desertion. You know, he, he deserted her. And he meets his new wife. Now, let's play this out. This is probably 1962-63. So Twitchell is probably 50 or so. Okay. His wife is 20. This is Abigail. No, this is Gail Atkinson. Gail right. Atkinson, that's, that's right. right. Gail that's right. Atkinson Twitchell. She later be- marries the second living egg master. Right. We'll go into detail there. <laughs> yeah. So okay, this is my suspicion. He goes to the library. The guy's broke. You know, I don't know if you know this. At the time, in the early 60s, he's a part-time writer. He's got no money. How mu- How do we know this? Because he borrows $300 from her, and she's only 20, 21 years old. Sure. Oh, wow. So Jeez. when he meets her, okay, he's 50. Now, how's that going to play out if you like somebody who's 20? So I suspect he then, it BSs, which guys too typically do. 
And I Whoa, think, this is news. And so, yeah, there you go. Is it, oh, wait, is, we've gone way too <laughs> oh, far. No. Now that's it's conspiracy like the theory. Delusion. Like, guys lie? Come on. You're going way the, too he far. might have a higher propensity <laughs> than even the average guy. <laughs> that's right. There you no, go. To sure, fudge it. You know. Fabulate. I, uh, so I suspect he comes up with a 1922 date in order to shave off. So he's like 30. He's doing like a Jack Benny. I'm 39 kind of thing. Right. And that's my, and that's, and that's why she puts it on his death certificate that he, you know, 1922. He also, in an interview with the Seattle Post Intelligencer, indicates that he was a lot younger than he was. And but, I think he did that for her as well. But then you have like earlier records of him getting into school when he is born in 1912. That's right. But then you have like a family record that shows him being born in 1910. Yeah, we have, we have 1908, 1909, 1910, <laughs> 1911, and 1912. Yeah. And the church has yeah, a different date. That's right. The Library of Congress puts 1908. Mm-hmm. However, to the credit of Anekist, uh, Doug Marmon, he's a kind of the apologist, but kind of a scholarly kind of guy. He's written a good book called The Whole Truth, which is really against me, but it's, it's a good book. He's got good information. <laughs> and he, th- I think he's right. I think it's 1909. As far as we can tell, it's 1909. Okay. Oh, oh he's an Eckist and he admits. He's an Eckist, okay. but he's trying to, he's a real good apologist. Like he's okay. Kind of, you know, he's like, no, but Twitchell, okay, okay, Twitchell didn't really go to India, but maybe he did it spiritually, you know, that kind of stuff. <laughs> right, right, okay. So you wrote this really beautiful passage that I want to read that if you wrote this when you were 2021, then I can't imagine what you are writing right now. It's so well put. Really? Oh, yeah. It might be plagiarized. We right. have to point out. <laughs> okay, here it is. So it's it's about Paul Twitchell, and you say, I have endeavored to view Twitchell's life not as one of the master or as the charlatan, but rather to reduce the master to a mortal and to lift the charlatan to a man. Yeah, I did. I remember that. Do you remember writing oh, that? Absolutely. Were you 20, 21? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Goodness! <laughs> David. Well, you know what? You know what it was. I think on one level, I was sympathetic to Eckist. Yeah. Because here you you're to take this guy. They thought he was the living Eck master. You know, nine hundred and seventy living Eck masters, all the way back to Gacko from Venus. And yeah, six Ru- million years yeah, ago. Yeah, or something. yeah. In the city of Retz. On the, on the, I didn't know there was a city there, but um, so what <laughs> happened was I didn't. I felt bad because you know I knew James Peoples. He was an mm-hmm. Eckist, nice guy. And Eckist, as you probably noticed when you went to the seminar, when they chant Hugh, and mm-hmm. they're kind of sweet and nice and benign. And so I just didn't want. Want to you know crash them too bad? Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. Tell us about that. Tell us about the charlatan versus the man. Where's the sympathetic part of? Well, Paul Twitchell? look, as I talked to Paul Twitchell's first wife, and she said Paul was a seeker his whole life. You know, he you know he became a press agent for Ellen Hubbard at Scientology. Mm-hmm. He joined the Catholic Church. Got initiated by Kripal Singh. He sounds like us. He's joining everything. Yeah, he's, joined yeah, every yeah exactly. But, he, you know, but he's really seeking, searching, or whatever. And I, my suspicion is the reason he found Zakankar is not only is he broke, but his wife, Gail, is very ambitious. And she says, you got all this knowledge. Do something with it. You know, why rely on these Indian guys who have the vegetarian requirements and celibacy and all sorts of things where you could just give the teachings into America? And it was the 60s, which was kind of an open-ended, you know, be creative. So so I have a sympathy for Paul Twitchell in that sense. Mm-hmm. And how long and how closely was he interacting with L. Ron Hubbard? Well, as far as we can tell, J. Gordon Melton, you may have heard of him. He's like the world's best expert on cults. He's set up the Encyclopedia of American Religion and things. He's a great guy. He did some research because he's in connection with Scientology. Him and James R. Lewis had done a book on Scientology. I think it was sponsored even by Scientology to get more academic uh, respectability. And he figures that he was associated with uh, Scientology from like 1956 to like 59. Yeah, pretty short time. Yeah, short time. He was his press agent. He wrote articles for him. We have published articles in Ability and other things like that. Mm. 
And so I, my suspicion is he becomes clear. You know, apparently he was announced clear in Scientology. But back in the 50s. That used to happen a lot faster. A, mm-hmm. a lot quicker. You know, now it's a lot harder. Yeah, so. these are still the fairly early days of Scientology. Right. Some of the early works are still being written. And, of course, back then being clear was you're all done. Now being clear means you barely started on the bridge, bridge. to total freedom. That's right, because you got previous lives you don't even know about when you were the slave for cleopatra you got to work that out yeah but i i see so many clear (laughs) ties between him and l ron hubbard just in terms of their life stories do you think he was singularly inspired by l ron hubbard that oh i can kind of synthesize my own you know that's a really good question and i suspect you're right on one level because he sees how successful l ron does because you remember, he starts Dianetics in 50. Right. And he doesn't expect to start a religion. It's mm-hmm. only when he gets kiboshed by the American Psychological Association that he has to form this Scientology in 54, 55. Right. And he you know, forms his own religion. I suspect you're right. I, I'm sure that's an influence. I, I feel like I see I do see a lot of Scientology in there, especially in that one book he writes about walking with Rabartars. Um, Rabartars. Thank you, yeah. Rabartars. We call them rubber tires. Rubber tires. <laughs> That's much easier to th- say. Thank you. He's walking with rubber tires. It's a little tiny booklet. It's maybe 25 pages. Anyway, in it, he talks about the eight dynamics of life. And mm-hmm. I was like, this is directly cribbed. Exactly. But other times I see more self-realization Fellowship, just in the structure of the religion, this idea that you pay in a, a you know modest fee every year or month, and you get just the leader's entire thoughts for that month printed out for you. Yes, yeah, it really reminds yeah. me of that, SRF. That makes sense because he was in it for five years on the SRF associated group. The other thing is that we think the biggest influence was Kirpal Singh. Mm-hmm. Because he gets initiated by Kirpal Singh in 55. Why I think this is that in 1963, when Kirpal Singh comes to San Francisco, he brings his Gail, he brings his wife to get initiated. Mm-hmm. So that's, you know, and that's eight-year association at least, you know. And can you tell us more about Kirpal Singh? Yeah, Kirpal Singh was, founded a group called Ruhani Satsang in 1948, or 51 to be precise. He was initiated by a guru named Sawan Singh who's part of the Radha Swami movement. And there's all of these different branches. So what happened in 1948 after Sawan Singh died, Kirpal Singh thought he was the successor, but he wasn't appointed. So he goes to Delhi, founds his own group, becomes you know pretty popular, and he practices this thing called Shabad Yoga. The argument is there's different regions of consciousness. Mm, you know, five that's where you get those multiple exactly, levels. Exactly, five to, oh, eight, eight, the, actually and, eight different regions. And so what happens, you get initiated into this thing called the five names, these little five name mantra. And you do it over and over again. And then you try to see inner light and hear this inner sound and right. follow that sound and light to its terminal source, which is like a Nami Purush or Radha Swami. Well, Twitchell takes all of that stuff, adds a couple more regions. Mm-hmm. And it's like, hey, mm-hmm. let's make this a little better. And ends it with Subad, you right. know, which is the highest of things. And there's a relationship there to Sikhism. Yes. What happens in that a lot of people get this confused because, you know, this is kind of my forte. A lot of people think that Radha Swami comes from Sikhism, but it's not really true. What it really is true, and there's a wonderful book, by the way, by Mark Jurgensmeyer. He's a professor at UC Santa Barbara called Radha Swami Reality. It's really the only great objective study of the group. Mm. I say this, I was his research assistant, so I'm a little biased, but it's <laughs> Princeton University Press, 1991. But the point, that's the reason I went to India on that trip. But the point on this one, so Sikhism and Radha Swami come out from an earlier tradition called Sant tradition or Sat Mat. Sat Mat, yeah. That's right. And that tradition is kind of a loosely eclectic group of Nirguna Bhakti poets like people like Kabir, Namdev. And, and so what happens is Sikhism comes out of that fertilizer. Same thing with Sat Mat. 
Now, the problem is they look so similar mm. that people think. But they're cousins. They're cousins. Very good. It's like when uh, creationists mm-hmm. ask, so why are there yeah, still yeah, monkeys? Yeah. Oh, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> that's good. I know we've left the topic of Paul Twitchell's birth yes. year, but many in the church also give a different date of 1812. That's right. This is what, now this is a good issue raised. I was invited, after Eckenkar got a copy of my term paper, they hired a business consultant to see what kind of damage it was going to cause. Now, they, they invited me to their Eckenkar Center up in Menlo Park, you know, nice, you know, nice building. And they expected some, you know, academic guy. And I'm like 21. <laughs> you know, I have a turtleneck, you know, slaps, looks like some surfer dude. And they're like, who the fudge is this guy? And so what they did is the, Bill Popham at the time told me, no, you got it all wrong. Twitchell was born... In 1812. Or, mm-hmm. And I go, what? <laughs> I go, you, you, you haven't taken us seriously. I go, how can I take that seriously? <laughs> right? Because it would make him, what, yeah, uh, like, 170 yeah, well, because he's Pedar or something. You know, because Paul's right. got that spiritual name. So apparently after that earthquake in 1812, he manifest. And, yeah, Pedar Zas. Yeah, 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 right. Okay, so, amazing. Yeah, I love that you would, to try to explain away this inconsistency in his birth dates, just explain it with something even more absurd. Yeah, did he then, as a 100-year-old, go to live with his parents and pretend to be born? I, I, I have no idea, and that's why with... And, and, <laughs> no, we I mean, need you to explain right, this. Right, right. Well, the very reason I put it in there is because of Bill Popham. He was the one who was mad at me for not putting the 1812 date in. Oh, wow. Yeah, so it wasn't even my idea. I wasn't trying to like bash the guy. I go, okay, I'll throw it in there. Sure, yeah, this isn't going to paint you in the light. You think it will, That's but right. I will include the information. Trying to steel man his argument, present right. the best version of it. Now, one of my favorite pieces of history in your book that I didn't even know about until I read this is that Twitchell originally said he had a five-year plan so a or five-year mission mm-hmm. and then as those five years were nearing a close he suddenly got a message from the masters that actually it's 10 years and then two or three years into that second right. five-year term he dies unexpectedly right. and now his widow has to pick oh who's the next deck master that's and right. man that's such a wild story so do you think that her appointment of Darwin Gross, do you think that's sort of how they were able to erase Darwin Gross from the narrative because, oh, he was appointed by the widow instead of by Paul? Uh, interesting question. Let me say a couple scandalous things. Okay. That's probably never been recorded, but I will say because oh, I have this on. Can't uh, wait. I have this from great sources. What happened with that year plan, you know, five years, 10 year plan? It was a way in, to entice people to be the next successor of Ekinkar. Ah. So it got people thinking, oh, I might be the next guy, or I might be the next guy. I know this because John Roger Hinkins, who was a member of Ekengar, even though he denied it, uh, founded this group called Messiah, MSIA, Movement for Spiritual Inner Awareness. And he's the one Ariana Huffington followed. He's a pretty famous guy. And he told me that he showed up in Las Vegas in 1971 because he thought he was going to be the next Ekengar master. (gasps) Oh, okay. Yeah. And, you know, so there's all this interesting stuff. So that was part of it. Uh-huh. The, the other part of it is is that in when he dies, well, as you perhaps know, he died in very uh, weird circumstances. He was found by a woman who is not his wife. Yes. Who shows up at his hotel door at one o'clock in the morning because she wanted to have the darshan of the living Ek master. I guess at one in the morning. I have darshan's a fun the, the term doctor, for that. Uh, uh, Louis Bluth, who eventually became the president of Ekengar. And of course, he left later, told me that he had to clean up the room 
for various items related to certain kinds of what I could say private activities. So condoms. Well, or, or maybe other, the DSM other, or I something. Mean, other I'm, stuff. I, I can't say on because I don't know exactly what, but he okay. inferred certain things. Semen. Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> Maybe implements? Uh, I, yes, very good. See, he's thinking like a guy. Sex toys. Yeah, there you go. Sex Something toys. Something like that. But I don't know. We, oh again, we want to be careful. I'm uh-huh. just talking about what Dr. Louis Booth told sure, me. Sure. Uh, what I'm coming we'll up leave with. Leave that in the realm of speculation. That's right. Pure speculation. I guess what I'm asking is, was he specific with you about what they were? Yes. But ah, I, uh, okay. I, I, uh, but he says, he, he tried to clean it up, right? Uh-huh. She's there, and then she just claims that she was just there for whatever reasons. She, I don't think she's ever admitted publicly. Sure. At the same time, I am told, we'll have to double check this, Gail was with Darwin Gross on a camping trip. Oh, so there was already... Oh, there was, uh, it's obvious. It's obvious for anybody with a brain in there that knows so, that something's going just on. Just for there. the people who are still trying to follow along and keep these names right. straight, Gail was Paul Twitchell. Twitchell's wife. That's right. And now she's on a camping right. trip with Darwin, Darwin Gross. Gross. At least that's reported. And for Got those it. who have eyes to see, they can already tell that there's something well, because going on with, between Because them. within a month, right, she appoints Darwin Gross because she has a vision that, you know, Twitchell said that he's the next... Well, of course, then they get married a few months later. And right. Carrie told me this today that Darwin Gross had only been in Eckenkar for two years at that point? Oh, yeah, very rare. I mean, maybe two years, maybe three years at max. So that he's ready for a second initiation. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> I mean, he wasn't very, you're right. And so what happened in his the initiations case, were they much immediately rushed this guy up to a higher level. Now, some people claim he was already a fifth initiate. I think Doug Marmon, in his recent book, has tried to claim that. That's fine. But he hadn't been in very long. Mm-hmm. Now, he marries Gail, okay? And he's a notorious womanizer. So eventually, they get divorced in 1978, which causes a major stir. And she, she sells back the copyright to every Paul Twitchell book. She gets a half a million dollars settlement from Eckenkart for that reason. Oh, wow. Now, here's a little interesting thing. My friend in high school, Ann Arnold, when she, Gail had divorced Darwin, her dad was married. Gail's the, dad or your friend uh, no, My Ann. friend Ann Arnold, her dad was having an affair with Gail after Darwin. Thing. This is a weird thing. Wow, Gail, Gail was busy. Gail gets around. Gail's a busy woman, and she would have been fun they to had talk dinner to. together, and Ann Arnold's like 21 at the time. They're all sitting around the table, and she, she says, well, yeah, I used to be associated with a group called Eckenkar. And Ann asked her, she says, what about it? She goes, the thing is a fraud, uh. which is really weird for her to say. She'll later deny it, but that's, hmm. that's that was reported to me when I was like 22, 23 years old. Now, Gail has passed away, correct? I don't or know. She... You know, I don't know if she, I know okay. she lives in the desert. As far as I remember, she was very wealthy. Okay. And she, I think she married again with somebody who had some money. And I think she might still be alive. But she'd be in, what, her 90s? Uh, let's play that out. Hold on. Oh, that's true. She oh, was well, much she, younger. But she was much younger. Much yeah. younger. So she would be probably So probably 80s? born in like the 30s. Yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> Carries on the job. <laughs> very interesting. No, hold on. She would have been, no, actually she'd be younger than that. She would have been born in like 1940. Because she was about 20 when she meets her 21. Oh, right. She was 30 years yeah, younger so than he. I was already buying his version of events. She's probably in the late 70s or early 80s. Okay. Okay. Fascinating. Going back to his death, obviously the church would say that he translated. That's right. But do they agree that he died of a heart attack? Yes. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it's, on, it's in his death certificate. That's non-controversial. But I mean, we've seen other groups who do lie about the means of death or try to obfuscate yeah, yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, they'll say it was his time. You know, in fact, the, or it was a Mahasamadhi. Right. Right. Like with exactly. Paramahansa he was Yogananda. He was meant to be. He had the transition. His work was done. That kind of thing. Speaking of which, Kerry mentioned that he had that kind of five-year plan before 
or he was going to pass on to a successor. Do you think he was planning something like a Mahasamadhi that he would die on command like Paramahansa Yogananda no, did? No, no. I, like I just think it was a way to get people kind of excited about who's going to be the next one. Okay. So do you think he always plans to then around the five-year mark say, oh, I just got a new message. I'm supposed to do another five, you know five more years. You know I think he was shocked that Ekankar took off. He uh, was a guy right. with no money. Right. Starts in 65. He meets like three people in Long Beach. You know, they go to this little seminar. This thing just goes off in a way he probably didn't expect. So that reminds me of a certain president who I think didn't want to be president. And then suddenly, <laughs> name, oh, Shall crap. not be mentioned. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, not having the long-term plans That's in right. mind. And it, this always fascinates me about the groups that we join is that you have this initial person with a certain set of uh, abilities, such as an L. Ron Hubbard or a Paul Twitchell, and they've now passed away, and yet so many people, thousands of people, are continuing on in their tradition. Yes. And it's just the oddest thing to me that they were doing something that, to my light, seemed very self-focused, but now they're gone, and it continues on without them. That's right. Yeah. In fact, you can make the argument that that's how religions evolve. I mean, any, Max Weber, the very famous sociologist, made the argument called the routinization of charisma. Somebody charismatic, like let's say L. Ron Hubbard or Twitchell, even though I don't know how charismatic they were, when they die, the followers want to bottle up that charisma. Mm-hmm. And they all have different interpretations. Right. So you have all these different offshoots that branch off. I mean, the history of religion is somebody dies – you get 10 new religions out of it. Right. Oh, right. And it's like cutting a worm up. That's right. We've talked about uh, on our podcast, we call it the veil of time. You know, with Joseph Smith, we do have some contemporary accounts. We can know of things that he did in his lifetime. But then you go back to, say, Jesus Christ or, right. you know, one of those, uh, Paul, you know, one of these That's early right. thunders. You don't have all of that ancillary material. Well, I made an argument in my class. I said, if you read the four Gospels, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in a lateral way. And you said, I'm just going to read this for biography. Like, how much do you know about Jesus? Mm-hmm. You find out you know more about your next door neighbor than you know about <laughs> Jesus in terms of biographical <laughs> right. information. Yeah. yeah. So you can romanticize it. And you can believe a lot easier that things happened in the past. You know, Moses went and saw a burning bush and mm-hmm. you know, all sorts of things. But when it gets closer in time, even then, however, you're on the right track. Yeah. Even with Joseph Smith. There's a wonderful book you probably know by Fawn Brody called No Man Knows My yes. History, right. mm-hmm. which is really a wonderful book. It is. And you find out you, know, you have 50 different wives and all sorts of things, and it all gets covered up. And people just don't want to know their history. When yeah. it comes to religion, people would rather bypass their brain to go directly to their heart. So. I think that's often the case. Coming back to the allegation of plagiarism, it's really interesting. I, I think now you couldn't pull this off, right? Because with the internet, we can cross-check everything. So do you, I imagine yes. you think, uh, that Paul Twitchell never thought this would all be, that anyone could ever retrace this, That's right? That's a very, very astute observation because you're right. With the internet today, especially with Google search, you can catch almost anything. So, yeah. And that's why, you know. So let's think of that through. Okay, we got Paul Twitchell. It's 65. He's got this obscure book, Path of the Masters, you know, a couple thousand copies. Probably, you know, how many people are following Radhaswami in America? Mm-hmm. Maybe two, three hundred. And he's thinking, you know, I'll just take this section and, you know, massage it this way and I'm never going to get caught. Right. And he's also probably, the other argument could be made is he has to produce new material all the time to generate money. Uh-huh. You know, What's a fellow to do? That's right. So he opens up these <laughs> books. You know, Dr. Louis Bluth told me, and in fact, it's in a letter to me. He said, I gave him a copy of Path of the Masters. And so he says, I knew he was plagiarizing. And I even oh, wow. confronted him about it. And he simply says, well, I'm just trying to get the message out. 
Uh-huh. See, a lot of people try to. The other argument, I don't know if you heard this one. This is the best one. Oh, I think I know the, what you're going to say. Yes. But please do. The golden temple of wisdom is on yes. some higher astral plane. See, what happens is these good authors like Julian Johnson, uh-huh. Paul Brunton from In Search of Secret India and others, what they do is they go to these libraries, pull off a book, I guess, and then copy these golden wisdom down to us in the earthly plane. So they're not really plagiarizing from He just each got other. it from the source. That's it. As did they before he did. And you point out this point in the book that I wrote next to it. I'm trying to find it. Oh, yeah, I wrote fucking brilliant (laughs) Uh, that if this is true, then that means that Paul isn't the original author, which means everyone can recopy all of Paul Twitchell's materials without a copyright claim. That's right, because it's copyrighted only on the astral plane, not here at the library. Right. Try to enforce that one. So I want to encourage all our listeners, make your own Paul Twitchell materials. See what happens. That's me, Carrie Pop. Be saying that, yeah. not uh, this not reminds Professor me. Lane. This reminds me of many of the early church fathers being confronted with like Mithra sculptures that showed something very much like the nativity scene, mm-hmm. but predating Christ, and them saying that, oh, well, the devil gave them that information in advance. Somehow he knew. Really? <laughs> that would cause doubts in people's minds. So, so I'm going to do this. Right. So, so that's why the chronology looks askew there. I see. That this looks derivative. It's actually the original, but Satan was just trying to wow. lead people astray. Yeah. That leads to the interesting point about Paul Twitchell's cover. The biggest thing I've always felt was not the plagiarism. The biggest thing was he claimed he'd gone to India in the 1930s and studied yeah, under a guy named that. Sudar Singh. And he, well, he never did. He just made it up. Well, mm-hmm. these are cover names. Sudar Singh is a cover name, mostly for Kirpal Singh. Uh, Rebazar Tars is a cover name, maybe for Swami Pramananda and Elra, a host of people that he actually knew. Right. And I, my suspicion is he does this to invent this beautiful mythology. So I have this tradition that bypasses Radhaswami, Sikhism, and all these other people because we're the original thing. Yeah. And that really bothers people the most, I suspect, because they thought, hey, wait, he was, was, this Sudar Singh is a real person. Well, there's no Sudar Singh. Right. No, he doesn't exist. So another ruse you couldn't really pull off today, you'd just go Google that name, right? Well, yes and no, because what happens is there's a guy named Sudarshan Singh. So some people oh, might no. say, take off the... The Darshan part is really Sudar, and, uh-huh. and other people claim, well, he was obscure and hidden. And well, Ching Hai, I don't know if you ever heard of Ching Hai. She runs these mm-hmm. restaurants called Loving Hut. Oh, of course, okay, uh, Supreme Master, Supreme oh, Master yes. Ching okay. Hai. Well, you guys, oh, yes, yes, perhaps don't know, but she was initiated by Takar Singh, oh, who was okay. a disciple of Kirpal Singh. It all goes back to these things. Wow, she denied it. There's good reasons why Takar Singh was pretty much of a scuzz bag kind of guru thing. And she was one of his representatives. Uh-huh. And if you look at her diary, for instance, it's exactly like Takar Singh's. This is, in fact, it's the exact same thing. So what does she do? She claims that she got initiated by some obscure Himalayan master that she doesn't name. Ah, uh, So that's how convenient. you cover And cover just you. hopes you'll stop asking questions that's after right. that. Well, she did. She kicked out two of my students in one of her seminars because <gasps> they were followers of Ching Hai. And they came to me and I said, well, you know, she was initiated by Takar Singh. I, we have documentation. I just ask her. Uh, Boot it out. Wow. wow. Ish. As I'm reading the Shariat Ki Sukhmad, okay. their the holy, book. holy book, which claims to be the oldest spiritual tradition on earth. It claims to be older than the Hindu Vedas. It's talking about Christianity. And that just seems like such a glaring, obvious plot error. <laughs> right. Is there any explanation from the Ekkis about this, why this book would be talking about Judaism, let alone Christianity? You know, I've never heard any Ekkis try to explain it away. Okay. I, I, think, d- I think they don't investigate it that deeply. They wow. just kind of assume it's some holy writings of their teacher. And maybe they don't read it so literally. 
You know, maybe they just kind of take the message. Me and my literal mind. But Ross is saying this was supposed to predate Christianity. Of course. Exactly. Of course. It makes no sense at all. I mean, what also doesn't make any sense is that Gakko lived on Venus. Well, sure. You can't live on Venus. It's a little too hot. Right. Came to Venus. Yeah, but I don't know. Maybe it's a spiritual thing. And and the scripture is also talking about the Lemurians and Atlantis. I know those things are technically as absurd, but... But there's orders of magnitude. Yeah, here. there's something just even more denying reality about not agreeing that <laughs> that BC came before AD. Right. Yeah. This should have nothing to say about yes. Buddhism, and yeah. yet it's in there. Yeah. Right. Maybe. Okay. So now I'm just trying to think, like, well, what would they say if they're in the room? I'm guessing it would be. Well, they go, maybe they talk to Jesus in the ethereal realm. He wasn't in his body yet. Or maybe it's prophetic, you know, maybe because Yukisukumad right. has the higher astral, sees all, t- there's a book called Talions of Time by Paul Twitchell, yeah. which talks about the ability to master time. So maybe, just maybe, you know, when he, he got this golden wisdom information, he saw the, and it just didn't make any sense to people 6,000 years ago. What are you talking about? Right. Definitely read Talents of Time if you want to get some pure unadulterated sexism, too. A lot of cool stuff about how women are just responders and cold <laughs> and heartless. Very cool. Very cool book. What was that comic that you got? Yeah, that was the graphic version of Talons of Time. Oh, gotcha. yeah, and they did yeah. a graphic version mm-hmm. of the Tiger's Fang. Oh, oh well. yeah, yeah, both yeah. of those. And, which is kind of cool. Mm-hmm. You know, the funny thing, here's another related thing. If you ever see the early covers of Paul Twitchell's books, like Tiger's Fang, there's like a little ship going off into the sea. It's an early edition. The woman who did that was Diane Stanley. And she eventually contacted me and she left the group. And, oh, wow. Yeah, she left the group. And then she joined some other, you know. Group. Sure. Yeah, that's how it works. <laughs> you got to find somewhere to go. Right. Yeah. In the comic version, it mentioned MEST, you know, matter, energy, space, time. Right. Yeah. Scientology. And it was just so. Not even trying, Paul. Yeah. Like Carrie finding the eight dynamics. At this point, do you know of Ekinkar having scrubbed a lot of these obvious references to other. Well, this is a good point you make. And we'll go to Darwin Gross as well because they've scrubbed all his books. Well, he didn't really write anything. A couple books. That was it. What Harold Klimp has done, which is somewhat clever is he's written so much, so many books. I don't know if you've noticed that. Oh, it's all clamped. Yes. And it's just, <laughs> I have it, a lot there are probably transcriptions of his talks and things mm-hmm. like that. So it's prolific. So that Twitchell has really gone to the background. Mm-hmm. And yep. so they, they scrubbed out Far Country. They don't republish certain books. I don't even know if they republish Letters to Gale or not. And so what they've done is they've minimized Twitchell. And so the one book I think everybody reads of Twitchell is probably The Tiger's Fang. The other stuff, they kind of just... The Shari Kisumad, though, you're right. And they have cleaned it up. Darwin Gross, one of his... He was the second living neck master, just so everybody knows. Darwin right. Gross was appointed. And, and then what happened to him after he got divorced from his wife, he wanted to retire. He didn't want to work, is what happened. And so in 1981, he appoints Harold Klemp, who was working at the print office, who he thought he could control. Hmm. And so he appoints Harold Klemp as the living neck master where Darwin Gross retains the higher title of Mahanta. Mm. But two years later, Clamp feels oh. like he's not being respected enough. And I'm sure there's some collusion with other people at the higher office. And they excommunicate Darwin Gross. Right. Because he was embezzling millions of dollars over to this corporation up in Oregon. Mm. Oh, okay. I thought that was alleged but never confirmed. It's that... pretty much confirmed. Okay. Because I have the doc- I actually have the documentation for his, the, what he did. Okay. The, for his, the money and stuff. Because he, they actually, this is an ironic twist. At one point, Darwin wanted me to be an expert 
witness for his trial against oh. Akukar, even oh, though yikes. he wanted, you know, though it was just a weird situation. <laughs> and so in that case, really what Darwin wanted to do was just retire, get $70,000 a year back in 1981, have a car, yeah. medical insurance, uh-huh. have the title of Mahanta, but not show up to these seminars and have everybody bugging him. All right. The professor emeritus of Hackenkar. That's that. As, as, yeah. we, as we've said on the podcast, it's good to be the Mahanta because you get credited for so much work that you don't have to do. You do. And, but Clamp uh, just, you know, they really nailed him and he could no longer use the Hackenkar terminology. He, could, he got sued over using terms like Viragi and things like that. Mm. And so Darwin... Kind of sadly, I think you know the story. He gets real. He loses everything. Yeah. Has no money. Works at a music shop selling like drums oh. and stuff. And oh wow! When does he start Adam? Then well, he starts Adam. His friends like Bernadine Berlin and mm-hmm. other people that are close with him started this group. But this was like nothing. I mean, yeah. nobody mm-hmm. was joining it. His uh, books were kind of like it still technically copy. exists, but it seems like it's yeah, one or two it was people. dead in the water. And I saw as you may have read that article by Dodie Bellamy. She's a San Francisco reporter flew down to San Diego. She used to be a member of Akincar and she defected. And so she writes this cover story for the San Diego Reader about how she defected and how I led her out of the group or whatever. Really nice woman. But we go to see Darwin wow. Gross yeah. at one of his little seminars. And, you know, he's playing the tones. He's really good. Nice music and everything. Mm-hmm. There's like 50 people. Great musician. very sad, you know. <sighs> and she goes up to him and he says this great quote. He says, Akincar treated me like shit. <laughs> this was the living neck master. Right. treated me like shit. So it was kind of a tragic story. Oh, Darwin wow. Gross. My favorite detail in that story is that when he was ousted, he said, no, wait, wait, wait. I just got a message from the masters and they said that Harold was supposed that to be ousted right. and I am supposed to That's be the master it. and yes. no one bought it. He wanted to retain that role because yeah. he wanted the money. Is what he wanted. It's really but, tough when only one person can go up the mountain and talk to the burning bush. Right. That's right. Oh, yeah. And then when you have every truth being revealed in people's private dream states and in their daydreams as well. I mean, no wonder there's all these offshoots. Yeah. And how do you track what's actually going on? You know, I could just say, oh, I suddenly got a message from God and he says you're not supposed to work at this college anymore. OK, how do you balance that against the visions right. Ross gets or That's the right. visions That's you right. get? Right. Well, you know, you're on something. I've always thought that Eckenkar was very clever about telling people that your spiritual initiations will happen in dreams or you'll have spiritual right. experiences. Because you, just imagine, you know, all of a sudden you join Akinkar, you read all this stuff about Rebbe Zartars or whatever, and you start seeing these guys. Sure. Yeah. In fact, I just was on a, a, an interview from this really unusual group called Dwayne the Great Writer. You've got to check this on the internet. It's Dwayne the Rock Johnson. Got it. No, no, no. no. <laughs> the, the Dwayne the Great Writer. That's his name. Okay. It's, he's in Huntington Beach and he's a surfer. Uh-huh. And they believe that Rebbe Zartars like shows up to your house. Like oh, he's wow. in physical form. <laughs> I'm like going, and they really I hope there's them. just a guy walking around doing that. I kind of want to dress up as Reverend <laughs> yeah, right. now. <laughs> and so, I mean, that's another offshoot, right? Because uh-huh. of dreams. Yeah. Like this woman was, kind of, I saw him in my, you know, not even my dreams, it's a vision or. And you, you don't need to do anything to sustain that once you plant that idea. Yeah, yeah. It's and he, and he self-sustaining. doesn't exist. In fact, there's a great tape of Paul Twitchell. Somebody asked him about Reverend Zartar's. And you can hear him on the tape. He forgets who the guy is. Like he's been making oh. all these names up. You know, <laughs> Bobby Quantz. Bobby Quantz Yeah, well, let me think about that for a second. Oh, yeah, it's classic. Oh, my he's God. He's just making this stuff up. Yeah. And he must have fun. 
Right. Yo, totally. Yeah. Yeah. Fubiquance is my favorite. Oh, I love Fubiquance. So in good. fact, my friend and I, that's how we used to call each other. Uh, hey, this is Fubby on the phone. <laughs> oh, hi, Gak. Is how it you Fubby? Doing? I thought it was Fubi. Well, it depends. You know, and I, can call, I don't know. I, oh, okay. I, I Let's ask him. You're ruining this for me. <laughs> I know. Let's ask him how he <laughs> says his name. I'm getting a message. In, it's Fubi. My... <laughs> Fubi. Wait, wait, wait. You're right. Yeah, that's Fubi. <laughs> it's been confirmed on the outside. <laughs> If I may read you to you again, you say this on page 108, you say, how can Gross's exodus be properly explained without usurping the very foundation of Ekankar's belief system? How can a living Ekmaster who allegedly has access to the very highest plane of consciousness get thrown out of Ekankar and not even be considered an initiate? Or more bluntly, how can God be dethroned? That's right. Yeah. I mean, it's really, it, 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 it caused a huge problem. You can imagine. Oh, theologically, among that the is Ekankar members, a major and that's problem. why a lot of them broke off. Like, there's a guy named Gary Olson who founded a group called Masterpath, pretty popular actually, mm-hmm. and he offshoots from that point. A guy named Jerry Mulvin, he does another offshoot, definitely right after Darwin gets excommunicated. Mm. That opens the door, the floodgates open up. Yeah, because what's to stop anybody from saying, "Oh, I just got a message." Right, right, and they they don't really like Harold Klemp because Harold Klemp. I'm sorry, Harold, I got to say this. There used to be this diarrhea commercial back in the '80s, and you look like exactly that guy. <laughs> you know, I mean, you just look like you're constipated. Things are happening, and but that's the problem. He's not very charismatic. Right. That's one of the things that I, I've discovered with these cult leaders. A lot of them aren't charismatic at all. What it is is that you give them an elevated platform, put them on TV, give them a stage, you know, a chair, moving around, a blue suit or whatever, and people go, "Wow!" People mm-hmm. respect but the office. But if you ever met this guy, you know, down down the street or at a restaurant, you go. Well, I think also we're mostly talking about the later term leaders of these groups, right? Not the original founders. Even, but, but even the original, you know, that's a good, uh, interesting. I may be right. I did a whole critique of my doctoral the- thesis in India and all that stuff about this idea because I kind of mm-hmm. critiqued Weber on this. Because Weber likes to say charisma is this indefinable trait that certain human beings are gifted with. And I said, no, I don't necessarily buy it. I think a lot of it's socially constructed. Like even Paul yeah. Twitchell, if you listen to him on tape, he's pretty like. That's true. Am I that's right? true. I did. Yeah. I played you some audio and I was like, yeah, he uh, he and, and Tree Herald I, kind I of have a similar tone. My mind was actively filtering it out. And like uh-huh. I had to focus on what he was saying. Yeah, right. Yeah, there was right. just nothing just not, about his voice. Right. It's not like some people like Leonardo DiCaprio who does seem charismatic, right? Right. It's just, it doesn't seem to have it. But what happens is we project, you know, I'm not Freudian. You know, he's a good novelist, a bad scientist. But Freud had a really good observation about transference. In Vienna, his patients would, after six months, project onto him. Mm. You're a good guy. You're better than my husband. Or you're worse than my husband. And it was all their projection. Same thing happens in these spiritual groups. You project all sorts of stuff that's not there. And we're all sort of borrowing each other's impressions. You know, if Ross says, um, oh, my friend Craig is a really good guy, you know, my my default thought will be like, oh, yeah, Ross said good guy. Great. So if you have, you know, 10 or 20, a thousand people saying this is an amazing person, your brain just defaults to that position. If we put a turban on either of you, right, let's imagine. And I said, you know, I came out, oh, my God, I've met the the masters, you know. And all of a sudden I put you on, you know, you have a turban and being blown by unseen winds, you know, third right. eye patch, flowing robe. And guess what? All the expectations are set. there. In fact, yeah. we did this thing called the Kirpal, a little controversial. I probably shouldn't have done it, but I had learned this secret technique on Shabbat Yoga, you mm-hmm. know, about how to listen to the sound. And there's this guru, Kirpal Singh, who claimed that he could give people an experience at the time of initiation of light and sound. 
like, wow. And people oh, wow. go, God, he's got power. Yeah. I didn't buy it. I thought, wait a second. I bet you it's self-generated uh-huh. and people are attributing it to mm. So Good I was thinking. teaching at a Catholic high school, 1984, University of San Diego High School. And I was teaching a death and dying class. I mean, people were dying to get into it. Joke. Yeah. <laughs> it was a bunch of deadbeats. Okay. Now, the point is, it's a Catholic <laughs> school. You know how bored they are. It's 1.30 in the afternoon. You know, death and dying class. Yeah. So I said, guys, we're going to do something. I'm going to teach you this ancient Shabbat yoga technique, which nobody supposed to know. It's not very complicated. And I said, I just want to try an experiment. Yeah. I'm going to go around the room, turn the lights off, and I'm going to touch you on the forehead, you know, like for a second, like he does. Yeah. And I want to know what the results are. And I had no idea. It turns out like 70% of my students said, I saw a light. I heard a sound. And what? Dave, Dave, had I, I, you told them that that might be the result? I, no, I hadn't. Okay. Well, kind of. I okay. gave them a, not totally exactly, but you know, some parameters. But now right. memories are getting right. modified. Right. And so all of a sudden one kid goes, are you a guru? I was going through a tunnel. I saw your face at the end of a tunnel. I go, what the fudge? So I huh. did it to all my students at the university. Then I started teaching doctoral students at the California School of Professional Psychology back in the early 90s. So I did it on them. So I wrote this thing called the Kerpal Statistic. It's published in a book called Exposing Cults or whatever. The Kerpal Statistic. Statistic. Okay. And it's this idea that if you tell people that you're going to have this experience of meditation, Mm -hmm. or at least the potential of it, they generate it themselves. And then the the statistic is that some roughly 70% are going to- That's right. Are going to have it. If Now watch. If I had you guys with turbans looking really good, I would suspect- the percentage would go higher. Sure. So I'm just some loser teacher at a high school. You know, they don't think anything of me, right? Some surfer And dude. I'm tempted to have you do it to us, but I think we're already primed yeah, that's to be right. suspicious See, now of you'd it. Be very too skeptical. Yeah. yeah. You have to have like almost like when you're 17 or right. 18. But th- totally. This is something that we're both very fascinated with, and that is like the physical correlates of the spiritual. Yes. You know, these things like when you get into a mantra state, you're chanting and mm-hmm. you're you're you get lightheaded. Yes. Uh, or you know, I you, get this trance thing where. I go like this. If, right. This is a podcast. People can't see me doing this. <laughs> I'm like pivoting in as chair. if I'm using a hula hoop kind yes. of. Yeah. That happens to me if I get really caught in like a trance like sound. Or or things like hypnagogic, hypnopompic oh, yeah. visions. You can see amazing things. It, or it. taking mushrooms or you know, whatever right. it may be that there is a real physical phenomenon happening there. But then we extract this spiritual importance. And it seems like a lot of religions sort of anchor all of their claims just on those little moments of the body. Doing really strange oh, you know, things. definitely on the right track. My wife and I had to give a talk in India at this Dialbog Educational Institute. We expected like to be seventy people. There were ten thousand people. It's like oh, wow. full on crowd. It was like unbelievable. But but we were talking about the neurobiological basis of sleep deprivation being related oh, to great. meditation. Yes, uh, yes. It turns out that when you have now, from an evolutionary perspective, it makes sense. You go to sleep at night. You don't want your body to start going all around. You may fall off a cliff or whatever, hit people. So your body secretes this chemical, right? And paralyzes, paralyzes right. you. And more or less. And for most of us, it's, it's benign. Mm-hmm. But right. for some people, it becomes severe. What's sleep paralysis? Sleep paralysis, like yeah. They feel frozen. Well, the meditators in India, we suspect, the yogis, go with that numbness. Instead of resisting it, you know, with people have sleep paralysis, they mm-hmm. usually like fight it, get mm-hmm. scared. They actually want to induce it. That's mm-hmm. one of the acid tests of Shabbat yoga meditation. Oh. So what they do is they induce that chemical paralyzation not understanding that it's neurological, neurological. Uh-huh, sure. So I think you're right. I think they piggyback on what our body already does. Oh, very interesting. Yeah. So, yeah. I definitely, with SRF, I remember thinking, okay, 
what you're describing is because you are not getting a lot of sleep because they would encourage people <laughs> right? to have only four hours of sleep a night. Yogananda himself would talk about getting four or fewer four. hours of sleep. Yeah. yeah. And if you do that enough, you'll actually literally see things. When yeah. You close your eyes and literally think it's real. David is pointing at his third eye. Yeah, third, yeah, yeah. <laughs> And I'm going inside now. Harold's channeling. But I, you see an orange or whatever. Yeah. And, you, and you'll think it's real. Yes. I had this student of mine here who had these out-of-body experiences. And he would claim that at night he would, you know, travel. And he goes, I can come to your office at night. I go, and he really believed it. And you say, uh-huh. cool, I left some numbers for you That's on my exactly desk. exactly what I did. Yes. I Good. put a phone number on my, I put my cell number on my wall. Great. I said, when you come in. Give me a call as call. soon as you he read it. He wakes up the next morning. He comes the next morning. He's like kind of tired. He goes, I think I called a couple bad numbers. <laughs> and he kept doing it for over like a, like a four weeks. Real good kid. You know, real uh-huh. Ordered we, a bunch of pizzas. And it depressed the hell out of him because he thought <laughs> oh, he was really yeah. losing the body. Yeah. But good for him for being willing to That's test right. it. That's yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's really good. Ross, I come to you in a dream, 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 dream. It's me, the Mahanta. Oh, I'm in bed. I can't move. I don't have any control. Radio sleep paralysis. Oh my God. This a lot scarier than I intended. Carrie's showing up. What's happening? I'm the Mahanta now. I'm the living Eck Master. Oh my goodness. This is amazing. Yeah, I know. Boy, which initiation is this? 18th yeah 18th yep mm-hmm. oh and what do you get on the 18th initiation i think it's something to do with clothing you get right? a bra <laughs> yeah it's like anniversaries that's right I, every initiation the first one is paper that's right you get a bell and then paper the sound of bees and what? then a, a bra on okay the 18th i'm excited what kind of bra do i yeah, get yeah i'm really i'm sorry for like jumping backwards in time to have this conversation but i thought it was important you know yeah no uh, david will still be there yeah yeah so you asked what kind of bra um actually it's a third love bra which is I mean, if they're going to give you a bra, like that's a really good one. Because Third Love offers bras in more than 70 sizes, including half cup sizes. Exactly. Yeah, I can't move my body, but my <laughs> mouth's working okay. <laughs> they are designed with breast size and shape in mind, and you can order them online and try them on at home. See, exactly. I, I've never had such a nice talk with an incapacitated person. <laughs> so I am this one. Uh, this isn't as terrifying as I've been led to believe. Oh, right? Yeah. You just lay there and your friend tells you about lingerie. <laughs> so here's the deal. If you want a third love bra, you can do what I did. You can become the living act master or... You can answer a few simple questions to find your perfect fit in 60 seconds with Third Love's Fit Finder Quiz. And for initiates, Third Love helps you identify your breast size and shape and find styles that fit your body. Exactly. Uh, And every customer has 60 days to wear it, wash it, put it to the test. And if you don't love it, just return it. And Third Love will wash it and donate it to a woman in need. Well, that's nice. I think so. And returns and exchanges are free and they're easy. Third Love knows there's a perfect bra for everyone. So right now, they're offering our listeners 15% off their first orders. Oh my goodness. So if you can move your arms and hands and legs. I will eventually. Unlike Ross. Go to thirdlove.com slash oh no to find your perfect fitting bra and get 15% off your first purchase. That's thirdlove.com slash oh no for 15% off today. Yay. Hey, speaking of online security. Uh, okay, Ross, but like, I feel like we should get you a doctor or something. Which we but, weren't. Okay. No, no, I'm good here. Okay, all right. <laughs> you know, it's not too bad. There's aliens standing in the corner. Okay, uh, behind me. But yeah, but I'm cool okay. with it. All right. They're great. not doing anything. They're just kind of shifting menacingly. And like every now and then they- That's doing something. They, they do bare their teeth. Oh, yeah. This and that isn't... freaks me out a little bit. Right. 
but you want to talk about internet security? Yeah. Okay. I'm just, I've, I've got this whole thing about like men in black now in my <laughs> mind. I'm thinking about security. There's, right. there's a lot of shifty, teeth bearing, horrible people on the internet who are trying to steal your passwords and hack into your accounts. Yeah. I didn't think we'd be talking about it right now, but I guess we are. So uh, actually, Ono Ross and Carrie is supported in part by Dashlane. Is that so? Yeah, yeah. Well, that's perfect because they are a service that can help you store all of your passwords in one location. And you can stop using that same password right. that's already been exposed in a hack online. Uh. And you can stop using that. You can start generating very complex, useful passwords that Dashlane will store for you. So you only have to remember one master password. Oh, hey. And this is your primary concern right now? I, I still can't feel my toes. Yeah, okay. Well, Dashlane is the only tool you need to stay safe online. Maybe not in bed, but in, online. It's got you covered. Worried about losing access to your accounts? Having weak or reused passwords? Yeah, don't do that. Right? Worried about somebody monitoring your internet history? That's worried about none of their business. Uh-huh. Worried about your data getting hacked. You know, all this stuff. Dashlane keeps you safe online from every direction. And using Dashlane is a great life hack because you don't need three or four different tools. Dashlane just does everything in one place and it's cheaper. Yeah, it's got like a built-in VPN. It'll fill out online forms for you. It'll store your credit card info, all of that important stuff. And it's all secure. All you have to do is download it, and you won't have to worry about online security issues ever again. Ever again. Worried about that recent tech company hack? Dashlane will tell you if your data is compromised. Mm -hmm. Worried about having access to all your passwords on any device? Mm -hmm. Dashlane's got you covered. Ah, And they've got a free basic version, but Dashlane Premium has all of those features. And it's cheaper than most VPNs or standalone security services. So get peace of mind knowing that Dashlane is actively protecting you from every freaking angle. But you can try it out first. Go to www.dashlane.com slash onrack, O-N-R-A-C, to get a free 30-day trial of Dashlane Premium to try the features in action. And then if you like it, you can use our coupon code, which is ONRAC, O-N-R-A-C, at checkout for a 10% off discount. Sweet deal. Yeah. Before we take you to the hospital, I also wanted to tell you that there's a new podcast I think you'll really like. I want to hear more. It's a podcast called This Podcast is Self-Care. And friend of the show, Drew Spears, who's been on the show a million times. The Drew Spears? The Drew Spears. He and Kate Raft co-host it. And it's very funny. Uh, It's all about like the different ways people use to love themselves. And they're very funny and uh, I think very cleverly dance around the border of sincerity and insincerity for an hour it's pretty impressive oh i love it yeah that's, <laughs> it's really fun that's a hard tango to tango yeah so you should listen i will and for now we'll call 911 and back to our interview with david you were mentioning the previous teacher who had a light and sound do you know what that sound was was it the hue oh you mean like the light and the sound what do you mean in terms of B- before paul twitchell yeah what happened is in, in twitchell's case he gets initiated by kerpal saying Right. And the technique is threefold. One is you repeat a mantra, which is five names. It's just names, you know, okay. some Hindi names. Well, actually, derived from Punjabi probably or Sanskrit. And then what happens is then you try to concentrate here on the third eye mm-hmm. to see light, okay? And then try to listen to a certain sound. And the sound that's really interesting- What will it sound is like? Is bell. They, oh. they want to hear the tinkling of a bell sound. Now, the tinkling of the bell sound, what will happen is, since I've meditated a lot, your body will start going numb. Now, the problem is, is that I have a theory of consciousness that our brains evolved the virtual simulator, the hypothesis. Mikio Kaku, mm-hmm. other people, Ramachandran out of UCSD, have hypothesized that we evolved this simulation. That is, I'll make it real simple. 
If you can insource various strategies before outsourcing them, you have a distinct advantage over other species that cannot do that. So mm. just think of like, like for a dog, for instance, mm-hmm. it tends not to think about the future and the past like the way we do. And the fact Probably. that we can't, we don't know for sure, but let's just imagine that we is given a language. We can think about the future of this trajectory, this trajectory, all sorts of things, so that when I'm going to go hunt the tiger tomorrow, I have an advantage. A huge mm-hmm. advantage. Fair yeah. enough. So the argument among these neurologists is that consciousness evolved is a virtual simulator. Mm. That mm. is, it mm-hmm. simulates things. Yeah. To run other people's That's minds. Right. Here's what the tiger's thinking. That's right. Exactly. So it gives you... An, an, so I was making the argument that in meditation, what happens is people go to these simulations almost like lucid dreams, and they see them really vividly. Mm. Oh, right. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, that doesn't mean they really are seeing these but things. But it's indistinguishable right. from reality. But it seems like reality. Because it's using mm-hmm. all the same neural That's pathways. That's the argument I was going to make. Yeah. Kind of uh, origins of consciousness right. and the breakdown of the bicameral Oh, yeah, that Julian mind. Jane's book. The yeah. very famous. Great title. Of it. Yeah. I love that. Yeah, I wonder if people like me who don't have a very active inner eye, if that's more difficult for us. Because I don't really think in words or pictures. Like, I think in these sort of amorphous... The feeling of thinking about something, you which know, has... I'm, I'm so glad you said yeah. that because Susan Blackmore, you may have heard yes, of her. Yes, oh, we, love, we Susan. love Susan. I love Susan. She's wonderful. She had made a very interesting argument. She said those who have a more disassociative personality, which means they tend to remember their dreams more visually and all that, uh-huh. tend to have more spiritual experiences. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. See, you know what I mean? So that yeah. makes good sense because a lot of people in the Shabbat Yoga group or even Ekankar, they don't get experiences. and They get real frustrated. Uh-huh. And I've always yep. wondered, do you remember your dreams? And Well, and- see, and I remember my dreams. So I don't know. Yeah, we but don't. there's uh, something called non-literal thinking that apparently it's like one in, I don't know, 50 people or something. And I thought everyone thought like this, that when I say, oh, I'm picturing so-and-so, I'm not literally picturing it. It's wild to me oh. that other people have an actual visual picture in their head. I use that totally metaphorically. I see. And when I'm thinking, I'm sort of like plotting the thought in my head, but there's no actual dialogue or voice in my head. But you're both looking at me no, like, oh no, the, how the, fascinating and weird. This is a discussion within no, the creative. But that's, that's a very good point because that shows you that people have different brain states. Right. Yeah. And from that, we'll have different experiences. Exactly. That comes up in the creative arts quite often. And there was recently an article and it was talking about how Glenn Keane, one of the most famous animators in the world who drew Ariel and the Little Mermaid and Beast and Beauty and the Beast, that he doesn't think visually. Mm-hmm. He says, I don't see pictures in my head, just like you're okay, describing. Good. And you would Glenn. think, yeah, you would think he would be like the paragon of being able to do that. And many other very creative people that I know, uh, you know, have that same mm-hmm. handicap, quote unquote, right. question mark. Right. But, but it seems like as these beliefs form and the groups form, they find niches for every different personality type. Yes. So maybe you have those people who see these things and they become the John the Baptists right. crying out to everybody else. And right. then they fall and fit within their own niches. Oh, I'm really bookish and I like to read all this yes, stuff. Yes, whereas I think if you and I worked for one of these groups, we would be put out as the sort of forward-facing person who's able to articulate everything to a larger crowd Ooh. and do the PR stuff. That's you, where wh- we would fit in. Whatever your specialty is. Yeah, there's, yeah. A, there's right. a little spot And you may for not you. be the experiential ones. You exactly. may not be the mystics of the group. Exactly. Oh, that's a good point. That's good. Another thing I learned from your book that I didn't know about was that Paul Twitchell used to just directly answer questions in his newsletter. And some of his answers, oh. he, he actually made predictions that didn't come true like 
uh, didn't spot that Nixon would win. Yes. Didn't he have Romney or something like that? <laughs> yeah, he said- uh, George Romney? Uh, yeah, right. Amazing. Yeah. Yes. Someone said, dear guru, things are so bad for this country that I must ask you to talk to God about the political future. I am asking as a loyal reader of the candid press. Right. And he said, well, I didn't want to make any predictions on certain events, but you caught me. So, okay, here we go. And then he says, the war in Vietnam will increase until late in 1968 when the doves of both sides come to the negotiating table. In 1968, Johnson and Humphrey will run against Romney and Percy and win. <laughs> wow. Whoopsie. Completely wrong. And that's one of the funniest things, that talk to God thing, like Frilly Fred and all that weird stuff. Again, I think he's trying to make money. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's obvious to me that he's got, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. You know, this is probably 67, 68 when he writes that. Right. And he's still broke. Ekankar hasn't really taken off. Let's talk about the term Ekankar itself. Uh, you write in your book that it's a Punjabi term. You're right. Right. In fact, the Sikhs, as you know, Ekankar is a very sacred name. One God is really what it means. It's two ek, words. Yeah. You've got Ek, Dotin, Char, Panch. Ek just simply means one. Like if you're doing Punjabi or Hindi. Okay. Mm. And so, so it's a and statement just, of monotheism. Yeah. And that's just E-K. Yeah, E-K. Much like the the yeah. X symbol. That's right. And so what they did is they kind of co-opted it with E-C-K kind of so they could trademark it. Yeah, and yeah. added an A. So instead of ek Onkar, That's exactly right. Ek-Onkar. That's right. And he most likely got that term. <laughs> There's a chapter in Path of the Masters where he lists all these kind of Hindi names or Punjabi names for God. And Ekankar appears there. So I suspect that's where he got it. He's just barely trying. It's like, you know, saying, well, someone I don't want to mention, but we'll call him Bonald Rump. <laughs> you know, it's so transparent. It's interesting that their logo ended up with the E-K, not E-C-K. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And, that yeah. makes more but sense they, now. Yeah, right. And that's why they did it. But, of course, they, he claimed he got it from the Pali Canon text, from some Buddhist scripture. Just assuming no one would ever look at anything else. Yeah, and not realize that the Sikhs were going, wait a second, this is our, you know, Ekankar Satnam Siri Waguru is one of our mantras. So. so let's talk a little about Harold Klemp. You were about to dish some juicy goss before we turned on the microphones. You said that Harold had always been sort of a little out of it. Oh, he had, he, had, he, had, he had a breakdown in the airport. In fact, he even mentions it in his autobiography. He had a breakdown. Oh, okay. He had a mental breakdown. I think, I'm not sure if he took all his clothes off or whatever, but he was kind oh, of nuts goodness. for okay. a little while. And he, he could tell that he's a sincere believer. This is what's a very interesting point about Clemp. He really believes it. I mean, he, he joined okay. Ekankar, like he buys it. Like, okay. He thinks this is truth. Okay. And so, mm. you know, that's mm. the most dangerous thing. And he's aware of your findings. Yeah. He, has he, to be. he came out. He came out in about 1984 with a seminar, mm -hmm. which he tried to address the Paul Twitchell issue, okay. you know, like the plagiarism and all the sorts of been stuff. Talking about. And he tried to, you know, like give a different explanation, a rationalization. Oh, there's, there's truth, but there's also yeah, a lot yeah, of. Yeah, right. And he was, it was a difficult time. And, you know, he had to get the truth out. And mm. so he kind of hedges a little. Kind of acknowledges some of the plagiarism. Okay. And clearly, that's why he pulls the far country out of circulation. You, well, what makes you think that he's a true believer? Well, back when, before Darwin was appointed, there was a guy working at the print office named David Stewart. And I went to go visit him. And David was an interesting guy at the print office. And we talked. And wait, you guys know David? Yeah, we know oh, a we David, know. Stewart. A David Stewart. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He was a pastor uh, oh, yeah, when yeah. we were investigating. Yeah, Adventist. yeah I, I don't think he's the same guy. But, I'm sure not. But he was a very sincere guy in Eckenkar. And he was really thrown off when he had read my term paper because he goes, oh, my God, you know, I, I, you know, I really believed in Eckenkar. 
at the time, Klimp was also working at that print office and okay. was known to be very sincere, like he really believed it. Mm-hmm. And so when he got appointed, this is my hypothesis, is that he goes, wow, I got this exalted position. I really do believe these dreams I've been having are probably true. Mm-hmm. And so he has to kind of figure a way out to, to kind of hold on to the group. And I think it's his sincerity that he believes it that's mm-hmm. sustained him for the last 30 years. Okay, not a cynical. No, no, he's not. This is going to sound terrible. He's not smart enough. Hmm. Okay. I mean, he's not academic, intellectual enough. Mm-hmm. He's like a naive cunning. believer. Yeah, he's mm-hmm. not. I mean, he's cunning in his own protect the organization way, okay. protect himself kind of way, mm-hmm. but not cunning in the sense of like really think this through mm. like you guys have done. Mm-hmm. You know, you got to a point where you get shattered. Mm-hmm. Where it was Shermer did. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I don't think he's gone through that. I think he's still, it's like, well, it sounds weird, but the, I was brought up Roman Catholic. There's lots of Roman Catholic priests who have done lots of bad things, we all know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but they still believe, mm-hmm. even though they haven't done the full investigation. So that's, he's different than Gross. That's, that's Darwin Gross seemed to me like a manipulator. Mm-hmm. Twitchell was a kind of uh, entrepreneur trying to please his wife and kind of believed. Oh, you think Twitchell believed oh, on yeah, some level? Oh, yeah, on some level, definitely. Oh, yeah. Well, because you said, you know, he's such a searcher. Yeah, yeah that's that, right. Okay. Like, he definitely mm-hmm. believed on some level. Okay, mm. interesting. So we've kind of got three examples here then, at least in your mind, the sort of, you know, really opportunistic, almost con man, Darwin Gross. Right. Twitchell, who's kind of in the middle, and Shri yeah. Harold, And Darwin, it also and partly believes. There's no doubt about that, too. See, that's the, the most okay. dangerous thing. Hmm. Each of them have a certain part of believing. The only reason I think Darwin Gross is more manipulative is because he was thinking about himself in terms of just money, mm-hmm. you know. But he did believe, even to the end. Okay. Yeah. For me, it's always just this, you know, shrouded mystery. You can never know fully what's going right. on inside that head. Totally. But but it's fascinating to look at the outside evidence and what people say and, and people close to them, what they right. can attest to. So now, have you guys read a book by Ford Johnson called Confessions of a Godseeker? No. He was an – you got to check it out. It's okay. an amazing book. He was a member of Eckenkar for 30 years. Okay. A major speaker, well-known, very articulate, high-powered lawyer – and defects. Okay. And he writes a scathing book with full information, you know, much better than mine. Because, you know, I was rudimentary. I was oh, okay. Young. Bye. So, yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah, get somebody better next time. And so you may want to check that book out. Ford Johnson, you Ford said, Johnson, right? Ford Johnson, okay. yeah. Confessions of a God. I see his Kindle. And he had contacted me many years ago to help him on his book. He did a really good job, I thought. A journey to higher consciousness. Right. Okay. He still wants to believe. 590 in, in, pages. Oh, yeah. It's a major. He may, he did a full-on work. Focus on Eckenkar? Oh, it's all on Eckenkar. Wow. Okay. It's all on Eckenkar. You'll, you'll find a lot of good information there. Well, I read this 200-page book, so I'll let you read that 600-page book <laughs> oh, and then okay. back. Fair trade. There you go. <laughs> I, I wanted to ask you about this image on the front cover. Oh, yeah. That's, of, that's of a classic. newest release of your book. So what is that? We have Paul Twitchell. Yeah, I'll tell in, you who you got. You got, in the middle, you have Kirpal Singh who initiated, Twitchell had just gotten initiated. He's in black, all black with so his head So we're down. looking at a photograph on the cover of the making of a spiritual, spiritual movement. movement. Right. It's and behind him book. is Kirpal Singh's associate named Madame Hardevi, not his wife, but some financial backer. On this guy is T.S. Khanna, who was one of the representatives of Kirpal Singh. Okay, this is Daddy Warbucks over here. Right. And then the other people, I don't know who they are. But this picture is, when this is very important for a lot of reasons. Because when I first came out, and said Twitchell was initiated by Kripal Singh, I got an official letter from McIncar denying it, mm, that he was right. never initiated. And here's the Didn't photo. Even, and we have a photograph. And also, when I went to India, Kripal Singh's son, who became a successor named Darshan Singh- Found the documents. Gave me every, I got to look at every letter Twitchell had written, 
dear master, dear, you know, initiation, all the kind of experiences he had, which were mostly dreams. Okay. Mostly dreams. Wow. And Kirpal Singh didn't approve of that because he said you have to have it consciously in meditation. Ah, right. Oh, okay. So maybe that was part of the defection there. No, my dreams are real. Right. 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 Okay. Now you've mentioned lawsuits from Ekankar. You also mention just individuals within Ekankar who have threatened you. Oh, absolutely. And even stolen from you. That's a more fascinating story. Let me, I'll start with Ekankar first threatens to sue me at the age of 20. 20. I think I get threatened at 20. Right. We come out. That emboldens you. In 1983, (laughs) we come out with another edition of The Making of a Spiritual Movement. A guy named Brian Walsh out of Berkeley wanted to publish it. We do a cover with a no X symbol, like the Ghostbusters thing. Oh, Oh, yes. I remember seeing that somewhere. One of his friends has a brochure of the book and goes to one of the Ekin Car seminars in Los Angeles and puts the brochure on every car at the seminar. Oh, wow. Ballsy. Apparently, when they printed it, they didn't do the cover over the X symbol. Like, you know, the little cross out. Oh, shoot. It's just got it. Uh-oh. So they sue me for copyright oh, infringement, yeah. which is the irony of all ironies. Well, I have a really high-powered lawyer because my sister, you know, blah, blah. So they represent me pro bonum. So we settle out of court. No money. No Nothing gets exchanged. Okay. I don't, have to, I don't agree say, to anything. I got the copyright yeah. from the golden yeah. book. I went to the <laughs> Right, <laughs> right. I don't, the I, don't, I don't agree to anything except <laughs> I promise we won't do that cover again. Okay. Well, that book starts selling on, like back like 10 years ago for like 4000 bucks. Because oh. it's so rare. Right? Oh, right. Nobody would, in their right mind would do it because it's free as a PDF online. I wouldn't buy a <laughs> dime for it. But the point is, is that that's, an, okay, that's one thing. Then Garland Publishers out of New York and London want to redo the Making of a Spiritual Movement as a reference library book. Mm-hmm. And Melton signs the contract. All gets done. Well, Akinkar threatens to sue Garland Publishers if they publish the book. Sure, they do. So they try to suppress it. Because they go, we don't have the deep pockets to deal with that in court lawsuits, blah, blah, mm-hmm. blah. So that's the next one. We've run into that a lot, uh, the lawsuit as an intimidation tactic. Oh, unquestioned. But the greatest one, the most famous one, is this guy named John Roger Hinkins. He is an offshoot from Akinkar, starts his own group called Messiah up in Santa Monica. He runs the University of Santa Monica back in the day. Well, I write him a letter. I said, look, you're like an offshoot of Akinkar. I've done this group on making a spiritual movement. You claim you're not a member of Eckengar, but I found out you were a second initiate running a seminar in Rosemead, California, where you used to be a high school teacher teaching English. So he goes, I got 15 minutes. His secretary says, the master's really busy. I'll invite you to Mandeville Canyon, which he has a mansion. So I'm like, you know, 20, 21, I drive over. Now, this is going to sound terrible, so I got to be very careful how I say this, but I make a joke about it. I said, anytime you go to see a cult leader mm-hmm. and you see five guys in short shorts washing his car, <laughs> you should be suspicious. Mm. So I walk in, I'll tell you why. Because John Roger said he only had 15 minutes for me. Well, I was young back then. He looked at me, he goes, I have all day for you. Oh, interesting. Well, it turns out that John Roger's gay. Yeah. But he didn't want anybody to know he's gay because uh, he only wants closeted. to have sex with heterosexual males. Oh, He's not okay. interested in gay males. Oh, so very similar to the guy in the Buddha field. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. It's something about oh, conquering. Yes, that's right. Yeah, that he was clearly a closeted gay man, but he would pursue men who said that they only were interested in women. Yeah, okay. So what John Roger, ironically, becomes somewhat friendly because he's nice to me. kind of gloves bombs me, goes, I'll support your work on Ekinkar and, mm. you know, all this. It was really kind of nice. So for like five years, I had a bat number. We'd call and talk about my trips to India and stuff like that and met him a couple of times. Well, in 1983... Three or four of his closest members defect. Mm. One comes from South America, two of his secretaries, and we meet in a private meeting in Santa Monica. Mm. And they go, you need to expose John Rodriguez. He's a fraud. He's terrorist. 
he, you know, does all sorts of things. And I thought, okay. So I called John Roger on the phone. I said, John, you know, we've known each other for five years. This is what they're saying. He goes out of his mind mm. for 30 minutes screaming at me. And I go, oh my God, it must be true. Why would you be yeah, upset, right? Oh, right? right. So I then write this much. article called The JR Controversy, A Critical Analysis of John Roger Hinkins and MSIA. But the day before we publish it, the people's names are we going to use? They all got death threats. So you go, you can't use our names. So I say, I go, what the? So I put my name on it, like an idiot. And then what happens is John Roger goes ape, robs my house personally. It's in the book called Life 102, What to Do When Your Guru Sues You by Peter McWilliams. Uh It's a famous book. I added that to my two read list. That sounds amazing. It's the funniest book ever. So what happens is he comes to my house with a guy named Michael Fader, we suspect, robs my house, takes everything, leaves a note like an idiot, takes my wife's diaries, then writes in the diaries, then sends all the stolen material anonymously to Ekinkar from Uh. Santa Monica like an idiot. Oh, here's some dirt on this guy. Ekinkar knows they got stolen material, sends it to my lawyers. We go through, have handwriting. (laughs) It's all John Rogers stuff. So Did I this go guy on, go to jail? I go on Geraldo Rivera show back in the day. He had, <gasps> okay. Like, now, before he went to Fox News. Yes. And I said on camera, I go, he robbed my house, John Roger Hinkins. And, you know, so I just uh-huh. go off, And I knew he did. <laughs> Never did anything about it. You know, he was, he knew. Like he, so I'd written this thing called the criminal activities and I started getting death threats. He threatened to kill my wife. Uh, I mean, he did up, you, were you we, tempted we, to report this well, to the did. police? We did. We you went did. to the okay. DA, you know, but- they go, oh, you got a suitcase stolen, your research material stolen. Yeah, this but the back, breaking and entering part. Yeah, but, yeah but, right. But you would think, but I guess it was the 80s where they just they had other things to worry about. <laughs> Bigger problems like the satanic, the satanic panic. panic. <laughs> right, right. Exactly. You know, like hey. the McMartins the down in Manhattan Beach, you know. And so in this case, what becomes really fascinating is that is that Peter McWilliams, if you see it's on TV, covers the camera when Geraldo wants to interview John Roger. And Peter's... Pretty famous because he's the guy who starts medical marijuana in Southern California. Okay. You know, a lot of people Boy, don't know. Okay, a lot of moving parts in this wow. story. So it's unbelievable. And he's famous because he's written all these books, Life 101. Stuff. So he crosses the camera. All right. So Peter contacts me in 1994 saying, I've defected and I, I need your help. I go, What? The last time you freaking idiots tried, I you wouldn't put your name in it. I got robbed and death threats. And he set up a, John Rogers set up a thing called the Coalition for Civil and Spiritual Freedom, where he sent out incredible letters against me, claiming I was an FBI, gay FBI agent. This is like a... The gay part didn't bother me. The FBI sure. agent was way too far. Uh, wow. Wait, so this is 1994, so now you're in your 30s. Yes. Okay, what yes. were you doing at that point? I was a professor. You were already you know, a professor. I'd already got my PhD okay. and doing got other it. stuff, you know. So, okay, so Peter defects, comes to visit me in Del Mar, and he goes, Dave, I need your help. Uh-huh. I go, dude, I can't do this. I'm going to get you know, ki- you know, killed. And, but he's a nice guy. So I said, here's all my stuff. So he writes this book called Life 102. Okay. What to do when you're a guru. Well, Ariana Huffington's husband, Michael Huffington, was running for senator, <laughs> if you remember this. Uh, no. Yes. She was running for okay. – he, he was going to win. He was going against Dianne Feinstein. Uh-huh. But she goes on camera and denies that she's a follower of John Roger. Okay. Vanity Fair comes out against her. People Magazine goes against her. LA Times goes against her. They lose the election by 100,000 votes. <gasps> Michael Huffington comes out as gay. The marriage was arranged. They get divorced. She gets a sum of like $30 million. I don't know how much she got. She then turns from conservative. If you remember back in the 90s, she was right wing. Uh, goes left wing. Okay. Creates the Huffington Post. Right. Uh-huh. Still loves John Roger. It's like one of those secret <laughs> things about it. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, I know. It's unbelievable. Okay. So then, okay, so it gets Carrie worse. rubbing the sides of <laughs> This eyes. story gets worse. I, I hate to do this to you, but what happens this is, is Peter then does this book, but I do it under one stipulation. Uh-huh. If you publish this book. <laughs> 
it has to go free on my new website, Neural Surfer. Yeah. Put it on my website. And he goes, oh, yeah, no problem. So I do it. Okay. Well, I'm in London teaching at the University of London or something like that. I get a phone call from my secret mole. We had a secret mole at MSI. Sure. Yeah, of course. <laughs> like the deep throat kind of thing. Yeah. I won't Just mention his, hope, hope I won't mention his name, MIA. but I will. His name is Greg Valamis. And so what happens is he calls me. He goes, Greg Valamis. He goes, you've been screwed. I go, what are you talking about? The Life 102 came out. It was great. He got a great chapter about the robbing my house. It's real nice. Yeah. And, and he goes, no, no, you don't understand. Peter McWilliams has offered two million dollars cash to sell the copyright of life 102 back to john roger <gasps> to pull the book off every barnes and noble off border oh, wow. and i go well how am i screwed he goes dave thank the only place the book exists is on your website uh. they're going to come after you they do they sue me Mm. I then have William Rogers used to be Secretary of State of the United States. Well, Rogers and Wells, a big law firm, they were going to represent me pro bono, like First Amendment right or whatever. But listen to this one. So we get sued. They want to go to court on this thing. We get a deposition from Peter because he's our expert witness. Like mm -hmm. Peter is like, I did this for a day, you know, blah, blah. Well, here's the punchline. I should have settled. They were going to offer me money or whatever. No, you shouldn't. Have well, settled. you'll see why. Okay. So it goes to court, goes to trial, and our expert witness is Peter McWilliams. Well, Peter McWilliams is dying from AIDS. Oh. Pete, John Roger had told him that if he wrote books with him, he would prevent oh, him. No. He had HIV, would prevent him from getting AIDS. Peter bought into it because he was like, oh, no. oh, it's unbelievable. But the only way Peter could take his AIDS medicine was smoking pot. Now, pot was illegal oh, right, at this time. right, Because of the- So the federal government, because so, uh, he had nauseous. come out arguing for medical marijuana. In fact, he'd done this thing in Beverly Hills where they were going medical marijuana. He's a famous guy. They put him in jail in a lockup, but he can't take his AIDS medicine because he can't smoke his pot because he gets nausea. Oh. So the judge, we tell the judge, we don't want him to show up as expert witness. He's, you know, in jail. She goes, no, bring him in. He comes in from federal lockup with shackles on, mm -hmm. walks by me in front of the judge and winks like, don't worry, Dave. I'm like, well, you can't wink in front of a judge. She's yeah. not going <laughs> to buy the testimony. Right. Mm -hmm. He supports everything I say. Mm -hmm. She disagrees, thinks that Peter's lying. Mm -hmm. I lose the case, have to pay the legal bill of John Roger Hinkins. Oh, no. no, it gets better. No, it gets better in a good way. So I... And this, I'll say this on camera, on, on audio. I, I told, the, camera I told the president of MSIA, I said, don't worry. Uh, no problem. I'll pay, you know, hundreds of thousands or how much it was. I forget. I said, uh, just tell John Roger one thing, uh, that not everything was stolen from my house when he robbed it. And I'm writing a new book called Life 103, John Roger Against Me. Just tell him that. Uh -huh. They come back. Uh -huh. They go, we will pay the legal bill. We will offer you money not to write that book. Oh, wow. And between you and me, there was no such book. <laughs> it was a complete bluff. And I apologize, but that's – and that was the end of the John Rogers saga. Wow. Amazing. So I, I stand by. You shouldn't have settled because you ended up prevailing. Oh, that's what – I never did. You're a very good point. Yeah. Very good. Yeah. You're right. You're yeah. Right. It's not good to settle because then it sets a bad precedent. Yeah, yeah. And almost always settlements have gag orders attached yes. to them and then you can't tell the truth. Yeah. yeah. So that's the, the John Roger. And he died recently. Um, and what a story. What a Forrest Gump style story where it's, you're like hopping from political yes. And it's just tied to, to everything. Historical yeah. figure, If you go on yeah. in YouTube, you'll find all the Okay. So, so Amazing. So tell us about your life now. My, you're a professor I, of I'm a professor of philosophy, philosophy for the last 30 years. I used to teach at Cal State Long Beach for 10, teaching science and religion. My wife's also a professor of philosophy. She's been here for 28 years. We have two boys. 
oldest one is Sean, who just got accepted to UC Berkeley. So hey. Oh, congrats. And then my youngest son is Kelly. He'd written this book. What was it called? It's When Computers Become Human. Okay. And it got accepted in China, of all places. They gave him a $1,500 down advance. Advance. Okay. To translate into Mandarin Chinese. How wow. wonderful. Which is like, kind of cool. He's a real smart kid. You know, nerdy guys. You know, yeah. Yeah. And so uh, right now, I'm just interested, as you are, like kind of in the science of things. Mm-hmm. And, and we're right now I'm with uh, Professor Jurgensmeyer and I are working on a new book for Oxford University Press for okay. an updated edition on the Radhaswami tradition. Okay. You know, the, all the offshoots and how they all get connected. Great. So. Fascinating. My undergrad degree was in philosophy. Oh, really? Where'd you go? Uh, University of the Pacific. Oh, right on. UOP, and did you if like you will. Uh, of philosophy? Which ones? Any philosophers you liked? Philosophers. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was really into like biocentric ethics. So uh, Albert Schweitzer, oh, good. Um, James Randall's. Yeah. Um, gosh, I'm thinking back 15 years. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, all the, I mean, ethics was definitely my bag. I understand. Yeah. Which classes do you teach? I teach uh, just a general introduction to philosophy, and then okay. I teach uh, critical thinking classes. Uh, I used to teach at Cal State Long Beach uh, science and religion class, which was fun. Cool. That was cool. That was an upper division class. Uh, in the old days, I used to teach doctoral studies at California School of Professional Psychology. I don't think it exists anymore. It was back in Del Mar. And I taught at UCSD. California for, School of Professional Psychology. Yeah, CSSPD. Is that now Alliant University? I think you're right. Okay. I think you're right. I think okay. that's what it is. That is where Dr. Jeff went. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. That ties into a totally different investigation. Really? How yeah. about yourself? Arrhythmia of our ayahuasca investigation, the chief medical officer is the oh, one she's referring cool. to. I studied animation, and I work in animation. I love animation. Me too. I, I it's, love that stuff. It's, I feel the highest art form because you have to do all those other things, composition, lighting, yeah. e- emoting, but it has to move convincingly as yeah, well. Yeah, and it's a hell of a lot of work. Yeah, it's amazing. It's, it, ever it takes gets all your senses. So so that that's my background. Oh, that's cool. And so you guys have been doing this podcast for a long time now. Eight years? Eight years. You know, what, of all the podcasts you've done, what was the funnest one? You know, the one you just went, oh my God, this is weird. Laughter yoga. <laughs> Laughter yoga. Tell That's me. the most fun. Yeah, a bunch of adults getting together and finding excuses to laugh, even That's if they've pretty good. got it's, nothing to laugh about. It's really great. You start out. There's no yoga poses. There's no yoga mats. Right. You start out in a room of maybe usually 40, 50 people. The person standing at the front of the room will start laughing. And at first you're thinking, <laughs> okay, I guess I'll force laughter along with him. This is awkward. And then you start laughing at the fact that you're laughing. And then you're laughing at the awkwardness of you laughing. And pretty soon you're in genuine <laughs> Stitches. Really? Yeah. So it works. Yeah. Oh yeah, it's great. That's a great. <laughs> that's really making me cool. laugh thinking about it. I want to go. Oh, one of my favorites was uh, we d- took a speed reading course, and I didn't learn to you know read as fast as you can flip pages. That's ridiculous. But I got so many little pieces of practical advice, and it kind of emboldened me as a reader. Uh-huh. And now I read more than twice as many books really? per year as I did before. Oh, that's before. good. That's good. So that's it good. made my life better. Yeah, that's fantastic. Some of this stuff, that's the other thing. That's what's kind of weird about these cults is that sometimes it works. Right. Oh, I mean, there's... that's one of the selling points is people are getting yeah. something out of it. Oh, yeah. I mean, if we don't understand the benefits of all these things, we'll never get at the root of it. Right. Yeah. I just gave a talk at Atheist United a few weeks ago, and it was lessons learned from belief and just all these really good practices. You know, like the the Mormons, they do great genealogical research. Unbelievable. And right. it's mm-hmm. motivated by their beliefs. Uh, uh, but, if you, but if you pull all of that away, it's still a great practice. You That's know, right. They store up food for the future and then give it out to their communities. That's well, you, great. You know, in this uh, class on evolution I was teaching, I said, you know, uh, we come up with this thing called meaning equivalence. Any meaning is better than no meaning, provided that such meaning, even if such meaning is nonsense, makes you live an extra day. 
Oh, wow. You know, like yeah? if you think about it, any meaning system, mm-hmm. whatever, like you know, Camus had made that very famous philosophical question. He said, there's only one great philosophical question, whether to commit suicide or not, right. which is a Shakespearean you know, Hamlet, to be or mm-hmm. not to be. And on one level, from evolution perspective, if you would live long enough to pass on your genetic code, it You're doesn't good. matter what you believe in, provided that you believe it. Right. You know, it always gets you through the day. Yeah. That's right. So in that light, then that's why we have thousands of religions. Mm-hmm. Because they float people's boat. And it's apparently fun to be the leader and creator of the religion, the founder and discoverer of the religion. You get all these benefits. Yes. Since I've got you here, uh, I just want to pick your head about this because one thing that always fascinates us is the psychological profile, what it takes to make a founder of a religion. (laughs) You kind of grit your teeth there a little bit. What are the common factors? Okay. I'm going to say something that's probably not true, but it's my observation. (laughs) Okay, great. Okay. This is a very guy thing. So maybe you'll, you'll get it. Okay. What guys... Do you want me to walk out of the room? No, or? no, 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 no. I mean, like in grammar school. Yeah, we have to take our penises. Yeah, 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 yeah right. No. <laughs> in, our, in grammar school, a guy... It, it, when I was in grammar school, and all guys, I went to Catholic schools, right? Uh-huh. And what we wanted to do is be like the best athlete, you know, like the strongest guy. Well, if you don't become that, right? Because you don't become... You, you look for alternative ways uh-huh. to get social status. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Louis Dumont calls it homo hierarchus. He was a very French anthropologist. And so the next thing you do is you probably mm. become the comedian or the, mm-hmm. you know, the funny guy or yes. maybe the mod guy or maybe right. the goth guy or maybe mm-hmm. the dark guy or whatever it may be right yeah, yeah so my hypothesis is is that cult leaders had tried every one of these things and never made it so what happened is they said shit i'm god this is my way to this be is king my of way the hill. to become somebody so this is sort of a version of the failed artist idea you know it's interesting though what that reminds me the most of is my predecessor at the james randy educational foundation a skeptical organization I love you, yeah Yeah. uh, So my predecessor was this woman named Sadie Crabtree, who was great. And she had a theory about why so many skeptics were assholes in organized skepticism. And it was this. She said, well, you've got all these guys who couldn't get fucked in high school. And so and they were like, why? I'm smart. Why does no one want to fuck me for being smart? Uh, And so then, you know, they weaponized it. They they meet at the same spot. (laughs) Cult leaders and skeptics. Same people. It's just... (laughs) <laughs> it's That's a, a for our show. <laughs> it's a way to rise to the top of the hierarchy Excellent. of needs. Excellent. Oh, fascinating. Yeah. And uh, it even applies to women as well, the Mary Baker Eddies and the Ellen Absolute. Whites of the world. Teal Swan. Teal Swan, yes. Theosophy Society. You know, oh, yeah, Helen Blavatsky. Teal, yeah, right. Teal Swan's an oddity because she's such a conventionally attractive person. She is, but she tried to be a model and it oh. didn't seem to work out. Oh, fair. Oh, oh and yeah. a professional snowboarder as well, I believe. <laughs> Got about that. Okay. Yeah. Well, anyway. Anyway, we, we could talk to you all day. Oh, yes. I appreciate and, you guys. And the Thank next you day, so much. this has been fantastic. I want to go back to school and take your classes. Oh, there you go. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much for sharing your your knowledge with us on Ekinkar and other things. It's been fantastic. And where can people find you if they want to read more of your books or uh, you know, hear from you online? I have a website Great. called neuralsurfer.com. Great. Just think of the brain. Think of surfing.com. You're there. Got it. Because you are a surfer as well. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, that's it for our show. Our thanks to David Christopher Lane for being our guest. Yes. Our theme music is by Brian Keith Dalton. Our administrative manager is Ian Kramer. Our editor is Victor Figueroa. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash onrack, O-N-R-A-C. And why wouldn't you do that? There's pictures, there's articles, there's all kinds of fun things. You can also follow us on Twitter at Ono Podcast. And why don't you go ahead and support us at maximumfund.org forward slash donate. Yes, and thank you to all of our supporters. And remember, if I had to leave you with one quote, it's from Nicholas of Cusa, who says, the unattainable is attained 
by its unattainment. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> One to chew on. <laughs> hey, I'm Aneke. And I'm James. And together, we are the self-proclaimed wonder twins of podcasting and host Minority Corner. We tackle subjects like LGBTQ topics, pop culture, and untold histories of American POCs, like the true story of escaped slave turned pirate turned Navy man in the Civil War turned congressman Robert Smalls. Plus current events from our perspective. Deep dive movie and TV reviews. You'll also get awesome book recommendations from their neighborhood friendly librarian. Don't forget my award winning Jennifer Hudson impressions and i'm telling you while never taking ourselves too seriously minority corner because together we're the majority every friday here on maximum Maximum fun most importantly david has anyone told you that you wrote an expose (laughs) never see (laughs) i'm useful okay never maximumfun.org comedy and culture artist owned audience supported